Common in Berlin. Hello and welcome to Berlin. I'm Marion Jones. This is City Breaks Berlin, episode 18, set in fact to be the very last episode in the Berlin series. And I'm calling it Novels Set in Berlin, because what I've done is been through a number of novels, nine in fact, to look at the portrayals of Berlin in them. Some of them are completely set there. From a few others, I've just taken little passages about the city to see what sort of overall picture we can get of the city before we wave it off Wiedersehen and move on to a different City Breaks series. I do think the nine authors I've chosen have come up trumps, and between them, I think you'll find there's a very varied picture of Berlin, toing and froing through history, giving lots of different perspectives. So then, without further ado, let me introduce my first choice, which is a classic novel called Effie Briest. Effie is a young woman of the Briest family, hence her name, Effie Briest, which is the title of the novel, written by Theodor Fontana and published in 1895. This is quite a little-known novel in English circles, but actually it's right up there and in some ways similar to those two great 19th century classics, Anna Karenina and Madame Bovary. The story is similar, a young woman of a good family, married at her parents' wishes to Baron Instetten, the fact that the marriage is quite arid, and eventually Effie causes a complete scandal by straying. The description's very understated, we're not really quite sure exactly what happened, but certainly society can't accept it. Even her parents reject her, and the whole book is a comment really on the society of the time, and the restrictions under which women particularly lived, and a questioning of how valid they were. Much of the novel is set out in the countryside where the family live, but Effie does come to Berlin to live with her husband, and at the point of this extract, she's married to him still, and her mother has come in to the city for a visit. I think you can hear, even in this short extract, the tension, the stifling boredom of her existence. OK, so, quote, The social season in the city was not yet over, when they started to pay their calls in April, but it was winding down so they did not quite manage to enter into it fully. In the second half of May, it dies out completely, and they were even happier than before to meet in the Tiergarten, when Instetten, that's Effie's husband, came from work in the lunch hour, or to take a stroll in the Charlottenburg Palace Gardens in the afternoon. Effie, as they walked up and down the long frontage between the palace and the orangery trees, always looked at the Roman emperors standing there by the dozen, noting a curious similarity between Nero and Titus, collected pine cones that had fallen from the weeping spruces, and then went with her husband, arm in arm, as far as the distant Belvedere, over by the Spree. Secondly, I have chosen a book published much more recently, in 2008, but set in the early part of the 20th century. It's called The Luminous Life of Lily Aphrodite, by Beatrice Collin, and it's the story of Lily, born at the beginning of the 20th century, to a cabaret dancer, but very soon orphaned, and about her struggle as she grows up and tries to get to grips with making her own way in Berlin. We see her entering the world of Berlin nightclubs, eventually finding success as an actress, and the choices she has to make along the way. One reviewer has commentated that this book showcases all the glitter and splendour of the brief heyday of the Weimar Republic. It's also the story of the coming of film to Berlin, and what the glamorous Hollywood age did to that city. But at the same time, as another reviewer commented, it foreshadows the horrors of the Second World War. 
The extract I've chosen takes us right back to 1912, when Lily is on a Berlin street as Kaiser Wilhelm passes by. The Kaiser Wilhelm, who of course a few years later took Germany into the First World War. And this extract is both a remembering of what Lily would have seen at the time and a hint at the horrors to come. Quote, Lily saw Kaiser Wilhelm II for the first time on a Thursday in February 1912. A thick fog had been lying across the city all morning and by mid-afternoon there was a taste of snow in the air. She heard the military procession long before she could see it. Marches played on brass instruments lifted above the rooftops and drums, the distance throwing them out of beat, boomed along the gutters, sending handfuls of indignant pigeons into the sky. Lily reached Unterdin Linden just as the Kaiser's open-topped automobile was approaching. As the car passed, she glimpsed his face, his huge dark moustache, his withered arm and the sweep of his pale hair. Of course Lily had seen him before on the cinema screen, walking with the Empress and Crown Princess Cecily in the palace gardens, opening regattas and launching warships. Wilhelm II was so fond of film art, as he called it, that he would turn towards the lens, give that famous smile, wave that informal wave, or tussle a child's already tussled hair, at the smallest prompt. That afternoon there were no cameras to focus on his smile, but he smiled nevertheless, at his subjects, at the huge crowds, at his city. A description follows of people shouting out hooray for the Kaiser, and applauding, and then this. A few seconds later there was a small explosion, followed by the skittering somewhere close behind of horses' hooves. The royal car slowed down and stopped. The Kaiser and the Emperor both turned and peered back. But it was nothing. A child with a firework, that's all, the whisper went through the crowd. Next, let's go to 1930s Berlin in the company of Christopher Isherwood and his novel Goodbye to Berlin. Another work which evokes the glamour and sleaze of the city at that period, its success and the dangers which are becoming more and more apparent. The narrator, Christopher Isherwood himself, is renting a place in Berlin, teaching English, and generally having a sort of gap year phase. We meet his wonderful Berlin landlady, who calls him Mr Isivu, and the various people that he mixes with, socialises with. You get little glimpses of very German culture, such as this description of supper at his friend the Landauers. Quote, there were plates of ham and cold-cut wurst, and a bowl of those thin, wet, slippery sausages which squirt you with hot water when their skins are punctured by a fork, as well as cheese, radishes, pumpernickel and bottled beer. I do think that if you've ever eaten a German Abendessen, that will resonate with you. Through the narrator's friendship with the Landauer family, who are Jewish, we see 1930s Berlin from a different angle. One day, for example, he's visiting Bernard Landauer, who shows him an example of the sort of threats and persecution to which he's already very dangerously subject. Quote, This, for example, Bernard went over to his writing desk, picked up a sheet of paper and handed it to me. It arrived by post this morning. I read the typed words. Bernard Landauer, beware. We are going to settle the score with you and your uncle and all the other filthy Jews. We'll give you 24 hours to leave Germany. If not, you are dead men. Bernard laughed. Bloodthirsty, isn't it? It's incredible. Who do you suppose sent it? An employee who's been dismissed, perhaps? Or a practical joker? Or a madman? Or a hot-headed Nazi schoolboy? 
What will you do? Nothing. Surely you'll tell the police. My dear Christopher, the police would very soon get tired of hearing such nonsense. We receive three or four such letters every week. A bit later, Christopher Isherwood describes going to a cafe near the memorial church, Gedechniskirche, where, as he says, Jews and left-wing intellectuals bend their heads together over the marble tables. He describes how they just talk together in low, frightened voices. Persecution against the Jews is growing rapidly. The left-wing writers know that their ideas clash with those of the Nazis, and they all fear what's coming. Quote, Many of them know that they will certainly be arrested, if not today, then tomorrow, or next week. So they are polite and mild with each other, and raise their hats and inquire after their colleagues' families. Notorious literary tiffs of several years' standing are forgotten. Almost every evening, the essay men come into the café. Sometimes they are only collecting money. Everybody is compelled to give something. Sometimes they have come to make an arrest. One evening, a Jewish writer, who was present, ran into the telephone box to ring up the police. The Nazis dragged him out, and he was taken away. Nobody moved a finger. You could have heard a pin drop till they were gone. There's a description, too, of a party held at the Landhauer's house out on the lake. People have spilled out onto the lawns. Footmen are bringing out glasses and bowls of claret cup. Here's how the description continues. There were millions of stars. Out on the great, calm, brimming lake, the last ghost-like sails were tacking hither and thither with the faint, uncertain night breeze. The gramophone played. I lay back on the cushions, listening to a Jewish surgeon who argued that France cannot understand Germany because the French have experienced nothing comparable to the neurotic post-war life of the German people. A girl laughed suddenly, shrilly, from the middle of a group of young men. This scene is playing out exactly as the votes from the election are being counted, the election which is going to bring Hitler into power. The narrator looks around the room and writes, However often the decision may be delayed, all these people are ultimately doomed. This evening is the dress rehearsal of a disaster. It's like the last night of an epoch. Moving on, you might know Jerome K. Jerome's novel Three Men on a Boat. Obviously nothing to do with Germany or Berlin, but he did follow it up with another book called Three Men on a Bummel. A bummel being the German word for a walk or an excursion. This was published in 1900 and it does contain a quite funny little section when the men are in Berlin. They are, as you might put it, doing some tourism. And Jerome K. Jerome's approach is to make sure that the reader understands that this can be really quite ridiculous. So, on this particular day, they're in Berlin. They've asked the hotel porter to find them a droshki, so a horse-driven carriage, someone to take them about and show them what's what. The hotel porter, Julia Bryges, quote, The man himself, who called for us at nine o'clock in the morning, was all that could be desired. He was bright, intelligent and well-informed. His German was easy to understand and he knew a little English with which to eke it out on occasion. With the man himself there was no fault to be found, but his horse was the most unsympathetic brute I ever sat behind. And he goes on to describe how, as the three gather for their outing, the horse looks with utter disdain at one of the party, Harris, who has decked himself out for the day in a white flannel knickerbocker suit. The horse, quote, gave one look at him and said, Gott im Himmel, as plainly as ever a horse spoke, and we all started off down Friedrichstrasse at a brisk walk. 
As the scene continues, you have the horse trying to rush on, as if to say, what nonsense is this? And you've got the driver, who of course is trying to earn his living, patiently trying to explain things. And you have the narrator and his two companions watching all of this. Opposite the Brandenburger Tor, our driver hitched the reins to the whip, climbed down and came around to explain things to us. He pointed out the Tiergarten and then descanted to us of the Reichstag house. He informed us of its exact height, length and breadth after the manner of guides. The horse is already wanting to move on, sets off up Unter den Linden. The owner keeps asking him to slow down, the horse is having none of it, and seems to be thinking, quote, They've seen the gate, haven't they? Very well, that's enough. As for the rest, you don't know what you're talking about, and they wouldn't understand you if you did. You talk German. A sort of compromise is reached. Quote, it was the same throughout the length of the Linden. The horse consented to stand still sufficiently long to enable us to have a good look at each site and to hear the name of it. All explanation and description he cut short by the simple process of moving on. What these fellows want, he seemed to say to himself, is to go home and tell people they have seen these things. If I am doing them an injustice, if they are more intelligent than they look, they can get better information than this old fool of mine is giving them from the guidebook. Who wants to know how high a steeple is? You don't remember it the next five minutes when you are told. And if you do, it is because you have nothing else in your head. Naturally, there's a whole selection of books about Germany and Berlin during World War II, and I've picked out three just to share a little bit from. The first one's called Alone in Berlin by Hans Fallader, published in 1947, so written just after the war. The story of Otto and Anna Krangel, an elderly couple in Berlin, who, at the opening of the book, receive a letter telling them that their only son Otto has been killed in battle. Their response to this is to begin writing postcards criticising the Nazi regime and leaving them for people to find in various buildings all over Berlin. It starts as a story of the little people, if I can put it that way, who feel they want to do something but whose efforts are almost certainly going to be in vain. They're not the sort of people who are heard by society in general. And sure enough, it soon becomes clear that their efforts are largely in vain. Most of the cards they leave, at great risk to themselves of course, are handed into the Gestapo and eventually they are hunted down and arrested. The end of the book is much more graphic and darker than the beginning. I've seen it described as an unrivalled and vivid portrait of life in wartime Berlin. And a review in the New York Times put it like this. To read Falada's testament to the darkest years of the 20th century is to be accompanied by a wise, sombre ghost who grips your shoulder and whispers into your ear, this is how it was, this is what happened. And here then is a description of the day when Otto's written his first postcard and is discussing it with his wife. It's understated, it's poignant, it's also horrific. Quote, Finally, he shows her his first completed sentence. It occupies one and a half very generous lines of the postcard. She says, you won't get much on each postcard. He answers, never mind, I'll just have to write a lot of postcards. And each card takes a long time. I'll write one card every Sunday. Later on, maybe two. The war is far from over. The killing will go on. He is unshakable. He has made a decision and will act on it. Nothing can reverse it. Nothing can deflect Otto Krangel from his chosen path. He says, the second sentence. Mother, the Führer will murder your sons too. 
He will not stop till he has brought sorrow to every home in the world. She repeats it. Mother, the Führer will murder your sons too. She nods. She says, write that. She suggests, we should try to leave that card somewhere where a lot of women will see it. A little bit later, quote, the afternoon goes by. They don't think about supper. It's evening and the card is finished at last. He stands up. He takes one more look at it. There, he says, that's that. Next Sunday, the next one. She nods. When will you deliver it, she whispers. He looks at her. Tomorrow morning. Let me come with you the first time. He shakes his head. No, he says, and especially not the first time. I have to see how things go. Come on, she begs him. It's my card. It's the card of the mother. All right, he determines, you can come, but only as far as the building. Inside, I want to be on my own. All right, she says. Then the card is carefully pushed inside a book, the writing things put away, the gloves slipped into his tunic. They eat their supper, barely speaking. They hardly notice how quiet they both are, even Anna. They are both tired, as though they have done an immense labour or been on a long journey. As he gets up from the table, he says, I'm going to go and lie down. And she? I'll just tidy up in the kitchen, then I'll come too. I feel so tired, and we haven't done anything. For a completely different take, and written much longer after the war was over, here's Robert Harris's Fatherland, a novel which imagines how differently things would have turned out if Hitler and the Nazis had been victorious. In this scene, there's a coach tour looking round the new Berlin where the triumphant Nazis are building their victory columns. Quote, Construction of the Arch of Triumph was commenced in 1946 and work was completed in time for the day of national reawakening in 1950. The inspiration for the design came from the Führer and is based upon the original drawings made by him during the years of struggle. The passengers on the bus tour, at least those who could understand, digested this information. They raised themselves out of their seats or leaned into the aisle to get a better view. Xavier March, halfway down the bus, lifted his son onto his lap. Their guide, a middle-aged woman clad in the dark green of the Reich Tourist Ministry, stood at the front, feet planted wide apart, back to the windscreen. Her voice over the address system was thick with cold. The arch is constructed of granite and has a capacity of 2,365,685 cubic metres. She sneezed. The Arc de Triomphe in Paris would fit into it 49 times. For a moment the arch loomed over them. Then suddenly they were passing through it, an immense stone-ribbed tunnel, longer than a football pitch, higher than a fifteen-storey building, with the vaulted, shadowed roof of a cathedral. The headlights and taillights of eight lines of traffic danced in the afternoon gloom. And then to complete the trio of World War II novels, here's a little bit from something we can't possibly miss out. The archetypal Berlin story from wartime, John le Carré's The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. And this little snippet describes somebody trying to cross over the wall. Quote, There was only one light in the checkpoint, a reading lamp with a green shade, but the glow of the arc lights, like artificial moonlight, filled the cabin. Darkness had fallen, and with it, silence. They spoke as if they were afraid of being overheard. Limas went to the window and waited. In front of him the road, and to either side the wall a dirty, ugly thing of breeze blocks and strands of barbed wire, lit with cheap yellow lights, like the backdrop for a concentration camp. East and west of the wall lay the unrestored part of Berlin, 
a half-world of ruin drawn in two dimensions, crags of war. So that extract neatly spans the end of the war and the going up of the wall, and points to the Berlin which was going to be left after all of that. And the next book I've chosen, Friedrichstrasse 19 by Emma Harding, takes us through Berlin in various eras, both pre- and post-war. It's strange how these very different books mirror each other in various ways. We've had two takes on tourism from Jerome K. Jerome and Robert Harris. And in the last episode, we had the story of a house, a true story, a house on Lake Klinika outside Berlin, and how its history reflected the history of the 20th century. And here, in the fiction episode, is similarly the story of a house, number 19 Friedrichstrasse, in fact, which is the road you'll be going to if you want to visit Checkpoint Charlie. It's the part of Berlin which was just behind the wall, and so absolutely central to the story of the city. And this book spans the 20th century, takes half a dozen characters who have lived at 19 Friedrichstrasse, and tells their stories. There's, for example, Sigi, a cabaret singer from the 1920s. There's Ilse, living in post-war Berlin and dreaming of escape from the east to the west. There's Tonya, who gets involved with the terrorism activities of the 1980s. And lots more, some of the stories interweave. All of them give snapshots of Berlin, particular parts of Berlin, at very particular moments. And between them, they tell quite the story. Here, from the beginning of the book, is a description of the house itself. Quote, An ornate Wilhelmina sandstone mansion, built in a U-shape, its three wings now divided into flats. Outside, linden trees shed their yellow leaves onto the pavement, and the stonework was elaborately carved, a Latin motto, crass tibi, oak leaf decorations, and the head of a woman with eyes closed, but lips slightly open, as if about to wake from sleep. There were two retail units on the ground floor, one currently empty, while the other housed an intimidatingly expensive private gallery with a window display of abstract sculptures that had titles like Chronology 2 or Facets of the Heart. So just that description is taking you from the 19th century right up to the present. And if you have an imagination like the author, you're thinking, what stories could that building tell, if only that were possible? And by way of answering that... Here is Siggy writing in 1948 about the state in which Berlin has been left after the devastation and destruction of the Second World War. She juxtaposes a description of how people are feeling and what the city looks like with the fact that she's decided to go into a makeshift art gallery. And as she puts it, quote, Yes, granted it's mad, I'm going to an art exhibition when we're half starved and all anyone can think about is queuing for food or exchanging western marks for eastern marks, for coupons, because your brain is in your belly all the time, and the streets are mostly grey or beige, and the people are grey or beige, and most of the trees have gone. So walking into the makeshift gallery inside a bombed-out bank, and all the ornate plasterwork was fire-blackened, just walking in and seeing those huge canvases with great swathes of colour, felt like jumping into a rainbow, like waking up something inside me that's been asleep for a long time. And to give a sense of the sweep of the book, here's a passage from later on, talking about a different character, Ilse, who was a young woman in East Berlin, dreaming of escape. And she hatched a plan. She got to know an older Western businessman, persuaded him to help her. And he came up with a plan which, as the author says, sounded at first ludicrous, but which, as they talked it through, 
began to sound entirely rational. The plan was that Ilza would hide inside the petrol tank of a car and get through the border that way. It sounds, of course, to us completely mad, and the fact that Ilza agreed to do it shows just how desperate people were. Quote, The petrol tank of an Isetta was cleaned out and its underside fitted with a hidden door. Above this, the mechanics mounted a second, much smaller tank, which held five litres of fuel, just enough for the journey from east to west. Despite her height, Ilza was slim and pliable enough to be able to lie inside the adulterated tank, her knees chucked under her chin. And the next paragraph's in italics, it's Ilza herself, in her own words, remembering what happened. I thought I was going to die. I thought I would suffocate in there, or choke on my own vomit, or that the petrol tank would somehow explode. The smell made me wretch. Every muscle screamed with the pain of the position I had to hold, and the movement. The shaking and the bumping and the noise and the terrible heat. We only drove about ten miles, but it felt like an eternity. I realised how stupid I'd been, that nothing would be worth dying for in that way, in that metal tomb. And to finish then, one last book called Book of Clouds by Chloe Aregis. I will list all the books and authors in the show notes to make them very findable. And I have checked you can get copies of any of them if you go online and have a look. In many cases, if you want to save a little bit, you can find second-hand copies too. So, Book of Clouds. This can be summed up as the story of Tatiana, who's a young Mexican woman who's come to Berlin, is a bit adrift really, finds it quite hard to get to know people, does a lot of wandering about by herself. There is a plot too, which I don't want to spoil. I saw in one review the mention of romance, violence and revelation. So it absolutely works on that level. But for me, what's most wonderful about it is the absolutely stellar writing, lyrical passages describing places in Berlin, which lead her often to reminisce, think back, little bits of history muddled in. It's a triumph. I highly recommend it. I think I included a passage where she's walking around the Holocaust Museum in an earlier episode, and that gives an example of one of the sorts of writing you get here. So to finish this very last episode on this book, I thought I'd just pick a couple of extracts which, in a few lines, give a very relatable description of modern Berlin. They come from a passage where the writer's describing going to a Christmas market at Alexanderplatz and then getting the tram home. So two very ordinary events, but very much rooted in a Berlin winter afternoon. Quote, I waited until the next day of clement weather. We'd had a spell of crystalline skies, but piercingly chilly afternoons, and alighted from the tram at Alexanderplatz, now the site of one of the dozens of Christmas markets that had recently appeared across the city. Starting in late November, these markets would spring up in every square and empty lot, and here, to accompany the competing stands of glue-vine, sausages and kitschy carved ornaments, an ice rink, blasting disco music had been set up in front of the department store. She wanders round watching red-nosed kids elbowing each other out of the way, as she puts it, and comments that really the authorities have managed to turn the entire square into a cheap amusement park. Then she goes to look at some of the shops. Quote, Marzipan bears with raisin eyes winked from the windows of my bakery and she makes her way home on a cold tram. Quote, the trams filled with bronchial coughs and sneezes, programmed to erupt just as the name of each stop was announced. In anticipation of the early dusk, the streetlights hummed on at ten past four. Some people put up a fight and clung to their autumn wardrobe, but for the most part, 
there was a proliferation of hats and coats and gloves. If you have been on a Berlin tram in the middle of winter, I think you will surely recognise that description. I like to think you've recognised lots of bits of Berlin from the various extracts I've chosen, perhaps discovered new things about the city, and maybe feel inspired to visit or revisit. So that makes my Auf Wiedersehen to Berlin, goodbye to Berlin, the end of the series. Please remember there's lots on the website. I've been writing blog posts to go alongside every episode on Berlin. There are lots of other cities there already. I think it's 10 more. All lovely places which I specially picked for their interesting culture and history. Florence, Seville, Toulouse if you're a Southern European kind of person. Paris and London if you want to explore other major European cities. Do go and have a look. There will of course be a new City Break series quite soon. More about that in the next episode. But for the moment I think we should say a fond farewell to Berlin. In German of course. I won't be signing off in German again for a little while. So, auf Wiedersehen Berlin. I hope you'll join me on a visit to another city at some point in the not-too-distant future. And meanwhile then, just thank you very much for listening. Vielen Dank fürs Zuhören. And goodbye. Auf Wiedersehen. <laughs>